Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the NeuroQueering Podcast. I'm your host, Pasha Marlowe. Today, with a interesting uh, and terrifying, <laughs> challenging topic uh, that is ADHD couples who have rejection sensitivity dysphoria at play. And I, a lot of my work is working with neurodivergent couples, specifically uh, those where one or both partners has ADHD, autism, trauma, and RSD, rejection sensitivity, dysphoria, comes up so often. I feel like it needs its own episode, <laughs> specifically around the dynamics uh, within the couple. Uh, that occur. So for those of you who don't know, I started as a marriage and family therapist. I currently work as a neuroqueer coach. So I work uh, with neurodivergent adults and often queer adults. Uh, the intersection of neurodivergence and queerness is, is very uh, clear and common. And so um, those often intersect. Um, I do individual work, couples work, and group work, and have been really digging into the couple's work. I feel personally and professionally drawn to that work, and um, and it's so much needed now. I do want to say that as a trained marriage and family therapist, coming from a perspective of systems theory, I see the family as a system. So I look at patterns, I look at patterns of interaction, and I work to interrupt the patterns to create change. I believe that there is no one client, that the client is the family or the couple. I believe that there is no one right brain, no normal brain, uh, no good brain. No one is broken. Not one person needs to be fixed. Um, everyone has different brains. The course I wrote is same bed, different brains. So while ADHD has disorder in the label, um, I prefer difference. Understanding each other's brains, accommodating each other's brains, uh, of course, is going to lead to conversation about boundaries and tolerances, communication, and ability to relate to one another. Um, it can be done. I see very many couples kind of on the brink of divorce. They don't know how to talk to each other. They don't understand each other's brains. And then after coaching with me for a few months, they come to a place of clarity and awareness and empathy, uh, greater communication skills or intimacy and eroticism is improved. So I do see it happen, but I also want to acknowledge from, again, a personal and professional experience that living and loving somebody with ADHD can be hard. And being the person who is living and loving with ADHD as the ADHD person is hard. There's challenges on both sides. So I have the unique perspective of having ADHD and having also been partnered with somebody with ADHD. I also have the experience of seeing what managed an unmanaged ADHD looks like and feels like and the impact of that on the relationship. Um, like so many neurodivergent people, um, there is this thought that if we if we love them enough and if we care for them enough and if we help them enough, then they'll then they'll heal or they'll learn to help themselves or they'll learn to manage um, whatever it is they're trying to manage. In this case, maybe ADHD. And we can't save other people and we can't make other people want to heal. We can't make somebody want to exercise or eat healthy. We can't make them take their meds. 
Um, and so sometimes for couples uh, with ADHD, uh, the person with ADHD uh, needs to choose to manage their symptoms and the person without ADHD um, might need to offer a little bit more patience um, as that process happens. And we're going to be talking about this a lot later as to um, when when one person needs to kind of rise up and the other person might need to back off. Um, but we can only save ourselves. I, I just want to start with that because it reminds me of that Mary Oliver poem. The last line is, you can only save the one life you can save, right? Um, because it takes a toll to be the one who's healing, the one who's setting up coaching and therapy, the one who's um, taking the meds, the one who's reading the books, the one who's listening to the podcasts, the, the one who's learning, right? So if one person is doing all that work, there's going to be a lot of uh, overwhelm, exhaustion, anger, resentment uh, towards the person who's not taking control of their life or making efforts to manage. So I know this gets very sticky and uh, sensitive. Understand again, I have the perspective of having ADHD and living with someone with ADHD. Um, I hope that this episode is as neurodivergent affirming as possible. I hope to not... Um, pathologize ADHD in the languaging. I believe ADHD is genetic and innate. Um, it's not something that we can fix or cure. We can manage it. Um, just, you know, we put on our glasses, we still have poor eyesight. We take our ADHD meds, we still have ADHD. So the challenges are still there. Um, they're just hopefully minimized, right? But they're, they're, in my belief, there is no cure. Um, and again, as I mentioned, like the name attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, unfortunately, is already a pathologizing term. And so sometimes we internalize that and there's some shame wrapped up in the diagnosis or the disclosure of a diagnosis. Um, and that that shame story and shame spiral certainly plays out in the relationships. Um, for many people, ADHD is a disability um, due to the intensity, the duration, the impact on daily living. So I want to note that as well. Um, the challenges and frustrations um, specifically around rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which I'll be uh, saying, calling RSD sometimes just for ease. There's also some controversy around the label of that, like dysphoria. Dysphoria means unbearable, but sometimes dysphoria is in and of itself a pathologized term, like a disorder as in like body dysphoria that sometimes is a term used. And so, um, it's really important to, to claim for yourself, like how you perceive yourself, um, with your, with your identities and how you want to be labeled and you can identify as, as you wish. It's interesting because I've been saying I am autistic, but, uh, maybe because it sounds clearer. I say I have ADHD. I'm really working hard. And I, I, it's not coming out of my mouth as much as I wanted to. Like I am ADHD. I am autistic. I am queer, which reminds me 
um, that we need to talk and make a quick note on intersectionality because we can't talk about neurodiversity without also talking about intersecting identities and the associated challenges such as stigma, discrimination, for example, black, indigenous people of color, queer people who are, who are also neurodivergent. There's a, uh, 40 to 60% uh, correlation of neurodivergent divergence and queerness. And for these communities, um, all these marginalized and underserved communities, there's a lack of services, uh, lack of resources. It's challenging to get healthcare. Um, it can be challenging to get a diagnosis. Uh, it can be challenging to access medication or to pay for any of the treatments. In general, there's an injustice in how privileged one has to be to get a formal ADHD diagnosis from a psychiatrist and pay for all the meds and the services to manage symptoms. It can be quite expensive. On top of that, there's an injustice, and it's a little humorous that people with executive functioning as a major symptom have to remember to take the meds that allow them to remember to take the meds. And <laughs> executive functioning uh, is is needed just to call the doctor to make the appointment to not just get diagnosed, but then to like keep up with the meds. And it's a controlled substance. Sometimes we have to call the pharmacy every month and remember before we run out of meds. So. It's, it's kind of a shit show sometimes. And so uh, for those of you who are partnered with somebody with ADHD, notice those challenges as well. Those aren't the challenges that we often hear about, um, right? The time management, the organization, the forgetfulness, memory, anger, those are real and we're going to talk about them. But there's also those executive functioning challenges that just daily we feel like, like, ugh, like adulting is hard, right? Um, which does, of course, play out with couples and couples dynamics. One of the main dynamics I see is the parent-child dynamic. So often, and this is not always the case, the person, uh, the partner without ADHD sometimes takes on a parental role and a parental tone. They used to say they're the higher functioning person, but we do not say that because we are not implying that they are higher of value in any way. There are things that they might do better, like paying the bills, right? Or remembering doctor's appointments. Um, sometimes I use high masking instead of high functioning because somebody who is neurodivergent, um, you know, and I'm going to put this in quotes, could appear high functioning, but they're actually masking uh, to appear that way. And that is exhausting. Um, so some people have just an easier time with executive function. And so if the person without ADHD is taking on a lot of executive uh, functioning in the home and a lot of management of the home, they're going to feel overwhelmed, resentful, exhausted, lonely, and they're going to feel like a parent. I've heard that like, oh, I have three kids. I have two kids. And then I have my partner with ADHD, my third kid. Then the person with ADHD, and this is not always true, but often the partner with ADHD feels like a child, feels shame, feels guilt, feels defensiveness. Um, they There's anger. There's sometimes rage. There's sometimes um, lying and fibbing to get out of conflict, conflict avoidance. Um, we avoid conflict often to avoid further rejection. So we'll lie to hide the full truth so that we don't get one more piece of criticism, one more judgment. So sometimes that's where the anger and the rage and the defensiveness comes in as well. Um, because it, it's, we have that panic of, oh, here we go. I'm in trouble again. 
and and then sometimes we experience that that rage as a uh like we're like we're like we're stuck and we can't get out of it like we're we're trapped we're in trouble um so that's when you sometimes see those anger outbursts and rage um then the partner without ADHD who's in the parental role feels like they're walking on eggshells um, so that they don't make the person with ADHD uh, upset. There's a lot of emotional dysregulation that comes into play with ADHD and all humans. I mean, let's put this out there. All humans have emotional dysregulation. All humans lie sometimes. All humans avoid conflict sometimes. All humans are sensitive to rejection sometimes. It's just we have this like uh, exaggerated symptoms that uh, last longer and are more intense and often disrupt our daily, daily life. So we walk on eggshells and we want them to manage their symptoms and we want them to heal, but we can't make them. Going back to my original point, we cannot make somebody heal. We cannot save another person, right? At a certain point, they need to take responsibility and make the effort to manage their symptoms. A lot of the conflicts I see are when one person, uh, whether or not that person is neurodivergent or ADHD, one person might just not be willing to do the work, right? That is a conflict. So let's talk about specifically RSD, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Uh, dysphoria, by the way, means unbearable. I've experienced this myself. I've seen it in most of my clients, and that is accurate, unbearable. Um, it is a painful and fearful uh, physical and emotional reaction uh, to real or perceived rejection, criticism, or judgment. Now, the perceived part, I'm going to argue that, yes, it might be perceived in the moment as rejection, but that is based on actual rejections and traumas that have happened in the past. Real rejections have happened, for sure. Real criticisms, real judgments. And so we perceive them because that's the lens we're looking through. Like I said, everyone is sensitive to rejection, but for somebody with ADHD, it could debilitate them, cripple them. It could lead to feelings of low self-worth, feeling unlovable. It could lead to suicidal ideation. Somebody with rejection sensitivity dysphoria might avoid social situations or any conflict, again, that could lead to judgment or criticism, feedback, negative feedback. Um, people might avoid uh, interviews, work assignments, work events, parties, sex, intimacy. Um, it is challenging for somebody who's stuck in an RSD cycle that we're going to talk about. Um, they get stuck in this kind of people pleasing, masking uh, part of the cycle, and then they don't set uh, clear boundaries. Uh, so um, personally, I've experienced rejection sensitivity uh, many times. Um, one episode that I remember most clearly is at work. Um, I got an email. It was mostly uh, positive or neutral. And there was one comment that said, I use too much detail in my explanations and that it it isn't appropriate to word vomit. Now, I think it is rude to say uh, word vomiting. I think most people with ADHD do over explain and often use a lot of details um, and that is something that we, that we work on. And so it, at the moment it was my uh, supervisor asking me to give my feedback. I gave my feedback. Apparently he didn't like the extent of the feedback and the details of the feedback. And so it came back that I was word vomiting. Now I know that he asked for feedback and I know that I gave my honest feedback. I thought it was constructive feedback. I thought it was good feedback. In fact, the uh, useful feedback, 
Um, but because he said word vomit, like neon lights, I could have a page of positive or neutral comments. And that one negative comment, that one rejection word vomit is the one that was in neon lights. And it just rang in my head like a loop for weeks, for weeks. And um, it made me anything from shameful to fearful to angry. And, uh, and I, and it made me uh, very challenged to continue working with that group. I will just say that about that. Um, so if you're talking to your partner and you offer some feedback about something that they do, or you offer criticism, or you tell them they're not doing well at something, um, and you wonder why they get so defensive or so angry about it, or seem um, to to then like need to, to take space or go into silent treatment for days. Um, that is because that feeling of being attacked and, and, as neurodivergent people, we've grown up with so many more thousands of more, apparently 12,000 by some age, young school age, more um, statements of criticism and judgment. And so we're looking through the lens that people are going to reject us, criticize us, judge us. Um, and there's, of course, behind that, a lot of fear of abandonment, fear of being unlovable, right? Uh, fear, fear of worthlessness. And so, you know, it does go deep um, into old, old trauma and wounds, which brings me to the insidious cycle of RSD, which is trauma, people pleasing, burnout and rejection. So the trauma is the actual rejections, the millions of comments people have made about our brain or us being lazy or not living to our full potential. Or um, if I would just try harder, um, you know, if only you would do this, if you would just do this. Um, it could also be trauma triggers around family of origin issues or abuse issues, addictions, lost lost family members, lost friendships, lost opportunities, lost jobs, being fired. You get it? Bad grades, all the things. So we have all of this trauma from actual rejections. And then we start realizing that if we mask up and people please, we won't get rejected as much. So we become very quote unquote good. We become perfectionists. We get good grades. We might be very polite. We might be very quiet, intelligent, can't say no, never say no. We don't speak up. We avoid conflict, right? And then we disappoint ourselves before we disappoint others. And sometimes we do over explain. And sometimes we offer details because we feel like we need to justify ourselves because we feel like people don't understand us, don't see us, know us, or understand us. And then, because we've done all that people-pleasing and masking, we burn out. We try so hard to fit in that we burn out. We have to take a break. We can't finish that project. We can't continue working at that place. We have too many spinning plates going on at one time. We can't have that challenging conversation. We might be now in sensory overwhelm. Now all of a sudden lights, the sound of the fan, the sound of the chewing, the texture of the sheets, the weight of the fork bugs us. And now we're dysregulated. So we end up losing sometimes opportunities, relationships, jobs, um, social events, friendships, actual rejections. So there's that insidious cycle that continues to repeat trauma, people-pleasing, burnout, rejection over and over and over. Now, what's interesting is also that there's this 
fear involved. Like, is this my RSD or is this anxiety? Is this my intuition? Can I trust the voice in my head saying you're being rejected? And so then we have this thought, like, I didn't get invited to that party. They must not like me. I'm unlikable. I'm unlovable. I shouldn't even be alive. We just saw a post on social media of our friends being at a party. Now, there might be a hundred reasons outside of rejecting us that they didn't invite us to that party. Our feeling of rejection is based on real rejections. But is it true that we weren't invited because they don't like us? Maybe, but maybe not, right? And so we start to think, can I trust the thoughts in my head? And then we start to kind of lose trust overall in ourselves. So one of the things that I do is I encourage people to really feel into their intuition, feel into their truth, and also notice what that feels like in their body and notice what the rejection feels like in their body and, and see if we can like notice that when we feel rejected, we might feel heavy, our throat might be tight, we might have tummy aches, back aches, headaches, a lot of grinding of the teeth at night. But when we are tapping into our intuition and our knowing and that actual truth of what's going on, that feels more empowered, that feels more grounded, that feels lighter. So it's good to ask ourselves, like, what's actually going on here? Like, is my brain braining? Is my brain playing tricks on me right now? Um, is that the rejection sensitivity? Oh, hello, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Hello, that part of me going into an internal family systems perspective for a second. Like we all have these parts and we have to, you know, look at these parts and talk to these parts and name these parts. So hello, rejection sensitivity dysphoria showing up when I see friends at a party that I didn't get invited to, right? Or hello, anxiety. Good morning. So nice to wake up with you again, anxiety. Oh, there you are, jealousy. Like, hello, jealousy showing up again. Uh, hello, anger. And so that might help you to start to name your parts and talk to your parts um, from a place of understanding that they were trying to protect us or teach us something um, and keep us safe sometimes. So we look at them uh, lovingly and we talk to them lovingly as much as we can. It's a practice. It's a practice, but it's something that I do in coaching often. So let's talk about um, how in the couple's dynamic, RSD shows up with sex and intimacy. So there's that fear of rejection. There's often body shaming, sexual dysfunction. There's definitely with ADHD in general, a lack of focus, challenging to keep our focus. You'd need to be focused to enjoy the pleasure, to give or receive the pleasure, certainly to orgasm. And sometimes there's this inability to feel at all, a lack of sensory input or too much sensory input a worry about performance, an anxiety, not feeling confident enough, being worried about our, our hygiene, comparing ourselves to others. We might then with RSD avoid intimacy or find excuses to not be intimate, right? The trauma comes back, especially if there's been any uh, sexual abuse, this will certainly make this more challenging. But uh, if we have that, the trauma and our brain is braining and we have this past of rejection and then we aren't focusing well, and then we feel like we're not performing well, we're going to avoid that situation. And then the partner might feel like, they aren't desired that 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 we don't love them anymore that we don't want to have sex anymore so it takes conversations challenging conversations to be like the story i'm telling myself when we aren't having sex is that you aren't attracted to me and then the other partner might say um the story i'm telling myself is um, because I can't focus that I'm no good in, in bed and I can't perform and you don't think I'm a good lover. And we have these conversations and we say, that's not my reality. That's your perceived reality. What's actually true is, and then these 
beautiful conversations happen where it's like, oh, sometimes it's like all of these years, I thought it was because you wanted me to be different. I didn't know you held this fear about rejection. I didn't know that there was a sexual dysfunction. I didn't know that you were nervous about whatever it is. Let's talk about this more. Let's call it out. The shame doesn't live in the light, right? It lives in the darkness and in the secrecy. Um, because people with RSD are, are often very fearful and they feel self-conscious and they, they often don't have the ability or believe they have the ability to talk through these difficult um, conversations, there's more of the avoidance um, that happens. That's the pattern that that I see. Um, I can't overstate the sensory issues because sensory issues are often the trigger for um, emotional dysregulation, often the trigger for RSD, often the trigger for anger, rage outbursts, um, often the trigger for shutdowns, meltdowns. So um, those of you who are neurodivergent or partnered with somebody uh, who is neurodivergent, especially ADHD, autism, sensory processing issues, um, just know uh, that that is often at the root of many of the challenges and uh, overwhelmed or underwhelmed by stimuli, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the textures, they might need to seek extra stimuli. Um, for some, they need to uh, to engage themselves more in sex and intimacy. For example, they need to um, explore porn or kink or other partners, non-monogamy. Um, some need less stimulation, like lights off, no noise, you know, headphones, weighted blankets, whatever it takes, but communicate about it. And, um, and then, and then there'll be more understanding and awareness. Um, I also want to say that, uh, one of the things that comes up often with couples is, you know, let's say, for example, like he's always late and he just says this is ADHD. So because of his ADHD, he could just be late all the time. Like that's not an excuse. And it, and ADHD is not an excuse, but it is an explanation. It's very much an explanation as to why your partner might be late all the time. Now, if they are not managing their time, if they're not trying new systems, trying to put things in the calendar more, trying to allow more time uh, prior to or after an event, um, trying to keep you in the loop more if they're going to be late, then that is a problem that they're not managing it or communicating more about it. Um, but it definitely is an explanation, not an excuse, but an explanation as to why in that example, they would have time management um, issues. Um, so, Ways to manage, because I, I know I've said a few times, like as long as they're managing it or trying to manage it. So I look at ADHD management as a five point star meds. If you are prescribed meds or if you choose to take meds, um, take them. And if you need help remembering them, and there's lots of tools uh, to help remember, um, I put my meds in my coffee mug. I will never forget my coffee. My meds go in my coffee mug, take my meds, pour the coffee, reward coffee. That works for me. There's other systems. Um, so a five point star one meds two nutrition, three movement four systems like coaching, like digitalizing, uh, like, uh, learning to, uh, um, use, uh, Pomodoro timers, or there's so many systems that we learn in, in coaching, uh, and in groups that are out there. There's so much learning and opportunity to try something different. So that's the fourth one. And then connection. So we have meds, nutrition, movement systems, and connection and connection, I think is huge. We can't do this alone. Hopefully, if you have ADHD or partner with ADHD, 
they have a supportive partner, they have friends, they have maybe a coach or a therapist, they might have a group like an ADHD group. Um, most all of my clients outside of the coaching they do with me, they might also have a therapist. And then they join uh, my neuro community group where every week we meet and we talk about a topic around neurodivergence. And then we uh, interact and we share stories. And then we go into skills building and new systems. And then we also do some co-working. Uh, events like body doubling to keep ourselves on task and keep ourselves moving forward and to avoid uh, procrastination and task avoidance. So joining a community is great. There's many, many out there. Um, I'll be leaving all the links of all the options that I offer, but um, but connection and other people so they don't feel alone and so alien in this, super important. Um, standing strong in our knowing. Uh, for folks with neurodivergence, certainly ADHD and absolutely with RSD, we need to know what and who we are. Like, what am I about? What do I know for sure? What are my core values? What are my strengths? What makes me unique? Remind ourselves of our brilliance, allow other people to remind us of our brilliance and our radiance when we forget. Uh, tap into your integrity and your intuition and your truth, right? And that will allow you to stand stronger when rejections or criticisms or feedback come your way. Because we cannot avoid, unfortunately, the stress, the trauma trigger of somebody not liking us, receiving criticism or judgment in an email, getting some negative feedback from our partner. We can't avoid that. But we certainly can interrupt the cycle or the pattern in how we receive it and then what we do with that information and how long we suffer after it, right? Because maybe one comment in an email used to, you know, put me in bed for two weeks and not work. And now it's like, okay, I know I need to get outside and move. I'm probably going to weight lift. I might go to a sauna and sweat it out. And I'm going to call a friend. That's, that's for me what I do. And then I bounce back the next day I can go to work. So everyone has different ways of moving through the stress cycle from laughing to screaming, to exercising, to playing music, to writing, whatever it is, like know that you even just shaking, shaking your body, like release the stress, release the anxiety, call it out. Um, say like, there it is. There's my RSD being triggered. There's my trauma being triggered and then release it. And if you, if you don't know how, like reach out to me, ask for help. Um, because moving through the stress cycle is really important. We also need to protect ourselves as sensitive, empathetic people. We feel things. We, we feel things a lot. We, um, we have knowing, we have intuition, we're empathetic. We can sense the energy in a room. We sense other people's energy. We're like, even if they're not talking, if it's an eye roll, we can, we can see it, we can hear it, we can feel it. So we're really in tune with what other people are thinking and feeling. And we're like, are you, are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? So sometimes we have to protect ourselves with like a bubble. I talk about this like invisible bubble around us where, where rejections and criticisms just kind of bounce off of us, right? That's the image I have so that they don't permeate and like cut in as much or as often. So um, know that these are skills that, that are learned over time um, and are possible. And for the partners out there, 
empathizing with the person with ADHD, understanding their brain, and then sharing with them like times that you felt rejected on the school bus when you were a child, walking through the cafeteria with your braces on, holding that that plastic tray, not knowing where to sit. Like we've all experienced that. So share with them your uh, rejection stories. Um, and then in conclusion, coming back to um, when enough is enough or when somebody doesn't manage it. You know, how much should the non-ADHD person uh, partner flex their standards? Can the ADHD partner accommodate those standards? What are you willing to compromise on? How much are you willing to take? Um, Are you asking too much? Are you asking not enough? Are you setting clear boundaries? Are you respecting your boundaries? Um, Do you see the the differences and the gifts in each other's brains? Um, Sometimes the ADHD partner needs to rise and make more effort to manage their symptoms more. And sometimes the non-ADHD partner needs to back off a little, a little more patience and understanding and empathy, but also um, maybe lowering the expectations, noticing if the expectations aren't going to match the other person's abilities, right? And then knowing that ADHD is not going to go away, right? Even if they take the meds, it might be managed some, but the ADHD is still there. So you will always live with ADHD and RSD. As somebody with ADHD and RSD, I know I'm always going to live with this. And as somebody partnered with somebody with ADHD and RSD, I know I'm going to live in love with this. And yes, it is challenging. But I believe through communication, boundary setting, compassion, and empathy, and tapping into um, talking to each other about our needs, our access needs, the concept of access intimacy, where both of you share your needs and desires um, and what accommodations you might need to reach a deeper connection. It's not all coming from one person, right? That one person is going to get very overwhelmed. So it's, it's reciprocal. It's equal. It's a conversation. And then every once in a while, like noticing that other person in a different lens, in a different way, bringing back a little more curiosity and wonder saying thank you for something that they might do every day. I appreciate this, right? Um, I thank you for this. Um, Going outside of your routine with either a friend circle or on a vacation or just taking a walk outside the house often helps because when you're stuck in the minutia of um, the daily grind of work or chores or parenting or sleepnesses or barking dogs and laundry and dishes piling up, it is going to be really hard to step back and have that compassion and empathy and perspective for your partners. But it is a hundred percent possible if both of you come with a hundred percent effort to connect with each other, to heal yourself and heal each other as a couple. So if you need any more support, I am happy to support you in this. I offer a one-on-one coaching, couples coaching, group coaching. I also have a new online program for neurodivergent couples uh, for ADHD, autism, trauma specifically, but all neurodivergent couples called Same Bed, Different Brains. That's an online program that um, that I recently put out. It's available through my website, pashamarlo.com, uh, as are all of my offerings. So I know this was a lot. I know this was potentially challenging to listen to. I hope you listen to it with your partner, um, share it with your partner, and um, reach out to me 
with uh, any questions, comments, feedback, please uh, also consider sharing this episode with others and, uh, and reviewing would be awesome too. So that's a whole lot of asks. That's enough for today. (laughs) All right. Thank you friends. And um, so good neuroquering with you. Before you go, I have a favor to ask. Please subscribe to this podcast. That way you won't miss an episode and it'll help me bring it to folks who need it most. Fellow ADHD minds out there, I know you're going to forget. I would too. So let's push that button now and subscribe. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bonus points if you spread the word of the NeuroQuering podcast by sharing it or reviewing it. Thank you. Also, if you want to see more of me, please follow me on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at NeuroQueerCoach. Sign up for coaching at PashaMarlow.com or to guest on my show or leave feedback, email at Pasha at NeuroQueering.com. Thanks all. Happy NeuroQueering. Enjoy your day.